Okay, so uh, so we're live, uh, and we're back uh, for a second episode uh, with Jim Ansbach. Uh, I think this is our fifth. Well, hang on, I I, I call this a continuation. A continuation. Jim, there a is continuation. never a second episode. It is True. a continuation part, yeah. of our initial discussion. Part two of uh, countless uh, parts to come. So, uh, so I think. Anyways, I think yeah. this is our fifteenth <laughs> recording, if uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I think that we left this uh, at right about where we were just about to get into uh, SCA, S- ASC 38, uh, which I think is where it's uh, going to start to get interesting. Um, so may- maybe we should uh, start with uh, a general question of uh, what, what brought SCE 38 about? ASCE. ASCE 38 about. Excuse my uh, my Israeli accent. You know, there was a convergence of events that all came together at the same time that really uh, pushed forward that development of ASC 38 or, uh, more importantly, involvement with the American Society of Civil Engineers with what we were doing at SODEEP. And, and that was uh, uh, several things. N- number one, there was a continued um, push by some of the Sioux providers that were beginning to pop up in the early 90s uh, to uh, service this new market that wanted to have an association that would... Uh, serve their interests in in promoting this new concept that we had of going out with geophysics and uh, identifying and uh, depicting utilities on plans earlier than during construction. And one of the uh, driving forces in in turning to uh, we're, we're trying to figure out what to do with this push towards an association was to determine well, what would the goals of such an association be. And unfortunately, those goals were not the same goals as what we had at SOBI. The goals of the association or those promoting the idea of an association were to kind of rein so deep in and say, you've got to stop being as progressive as you are because we can't catch up and we're not getting the work. You're talking about this designating and this uh, uh, surveying and, and stamping utility plans, and and we don't have the capability for that. We're hole diggers. We like to dig holes with our vacuum truck and, and expose utilities, and, and that's our niche, and you're going too fast for us to catch up. Uh and we didn't want an association that's so deep that would promote nothing other than excellence. And so we decided to uh, do whatever we could to slow that effort down. You know, interestingly enough, here it is in 2022, and in 2020, we finally got to the stage where there was an association. So. Uh, you know, 20 years after after the uh, uh, the idea that we needed an association, the market was mature enough 
and the practice was advanced enough that it made sense to put an association uh, uh, together for that, the, the Subsurface Utility Engineering Association. But back then, uh, I think that would have, in fact, halted uh, the progress we were making because we would have had to innovate by committee at that point, and uh, that's never a good thing. Uh, so that was one factor, is how do we counter this association uh, uh, request by other providers as the subsurface utility engineering market was expanding throughout the country? The second was uh, Paul Scott, uh, the Federal Highway Administration utility engineer, and I were invited down to University of Alabama to uh, present to the civil engineering class a lecture on utilities and how to deal with them in this new concept of subsurface utility engineering. So we gave a, a nice 90-minute uh, lecture, and the uh, incoming president of the American Society of Civil Engineers just happened to be uh, the dean of the civil engineering department there at University of Alabama. So as we finished our day and we went to dinner, he said, you know, I really like what I heard. Uh, we have a problem within the civil engineering community in that engineers, even though they are stamping their plans and putting a disclaimer on it saying, I'm not responsible for utilities. Utilities are the responsibility of the contractor at time of construction. The courts were not uh, always uh, honoring that particular disclaimer and they were starting to uh, decide in some cases against the engineer because in fact there are methods uh, to address the utilities early, and, and, and we were providing some of those methods. So um, he suggested that ASCE might be a great organization uh, to help create a standard for engineers that would help protect those engineers using the concepts of the quality levels, although we didn't call them that then yet, uh, but the, the, um, uh, the, the, the idea that different methods of obtaining utility information and using those methods and differentiating them on a set of plans might be able to provide the engineer some protection. So that sounded good to me, and we discussed a little bit that, gee, you know, maybe ASCE could be our, our uh, association, so to speak, that would allow the profession to continue to innovate and advance within the realm of engineering rather than within the realm of contracting, which is where some of those subsurface utility engineering providers wanted it to stay. So that was really the impetus to get ASCE 38 uh, in development. And uh, we put together a proposal uh, for ASCE uh, on that, and they accepted the proposal, and we put together a committee, and we were off and running. 
how long did that take you, Jim? Because I know, for example, the AFC, what was it, the AFC 38, 19 or 20, 21, 22? How many years did it uh, yeah. go from inception? Because it, it was actually released in 2002 because, of, of course, AFC 3802. But when did you actually start working on that? We, we were in Alabama in 1994, as I recollect. And we wow. had the committee put together and formed uh, by 1996. And we published in 2000, January of 2003, although we called it 2002 edition because that's when it, uh, that's when it went to publication. So it, even back then, it was a, uh, a six-year effort uh, going from, you know, zero to, uh, to a finished product. Now, when we started with the standard or when it actually got published, what type of uptake or what type of, uh, you know, what, what type of reception did it receive within the community? Well, it was a muted reception. I mean, there, there were those of us in the know that were very excited about it. Um, and, Federal Highway Administrations was very excited about it and and was promoting it heavily. Uh, but throughout the engineering community, just like anything else, it was a matter of an education process because we were fundamentally changing the way that civil engineers understood uh, the practice of depicting utilities on plan sets would be. And it's it's an education process that continues today. It it has never really stopped, and it never ramped up, you know, asymptotically uh, uh, the the way I thought it would. It has been a slow slog uh, in getting engineers to understand it. And and one of the main reasons was trying to get anything new adopted into the academic curriculum. Uh, especially at that undergraduate engineering level is very difficult because we just don't have the time to cram everything in four years of instruction that needs to be crammed in. And so there was never uh, an, an orientation to the new students coming out in the world that this standard existed. Um, and therefore, the way students learned was from their mentors on the job and those mentors grew up addressing utilities a different way so it has been a a long educational process to the engineering community uh, that has taken a lot longer than i thought it would uh i didn't realize the magnitude of the effort then uh but i appreciate it now so Jim, with, with your starting off and with uh, getting the, the community to accept us, were there any real champions? I know that, uh, for example, up in Canada, you know, there were a few municipalities and a few municipalities that really championed it and really pushed it forward. Uh, were there any real champions which uh, joined uh, the light brigade to charge against uh, uh, the, the tanks of, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, peripheral tanks of uh, stagnation? Well, there were certainly champions amongst the providers, although not too many. Uh, uh, Tampa Bay Engineering certainly uh, joined with with SoDeep, and between SoDeep and, and and TBE, 
and FHWA, I believe that was truly the triumvirate uh, push to get the standard uh, uh, not necessarily adopted, although we, we tried to get it adopted, but certainly uh, promoted and uh, uh, tried uh, in within their system. APWA uh, and FAA, uh, uh, Department of Energy, uh, Department of Defense, all of those organizations paid good lip service to it. it you know, it sounds like, and it was, a good idea, uh, a great idea. And they said, yes, we need to endorse this standard going forward. But again, those organizations also are slow to change. Um, and, and so it, it took a while to get beyond the initial endorsement stage and actual adoption. Now, when I'm looking at the AC38, it's a, it's a very it's a very small book comparative, you know, compa if we're comparing to other standards or other best practices. And uh, there was a lot of things over the years which have been found to be a, a very loose in terms of interpretation. When you were putting it together, were you was that the uh, was that the intent that you let the industry decide how to interpret it, or was it uh, was it a uh, we'll call it a compromise of actually getting it out. Well, that's that's a, a good question, and I struggle with that answer. When we put it together, we thought that it contained enough language that it would get the job done with the assumption, and, and it was an incorrect assumption on our part, but the assumption that everyone who read that would understand English, not take it out of context, would actually want to provide uh, services with an eye towards excellence rather than mediocrity or doing the least amount possible uh, to say that we complied with this uh, and, and so there were a lot of uh, phrases taken out of context. You know, you have to read that standard in its entirety and understand how those uh, uh, particular uh, clauses and, and requirements fit together. We thought we did a masterful job initially, and going back and reading it again, I think we did an, a very good job, but there were some... Uh, areas that were left general because we thought that, again, the industry would interpret those in such a way as to strive for excellence rather than not. And that was a mistake uh, in our understanding of how non-mandatory standards are uh, looked at and perceived uh, by the engineering community and and their clients uh, just as much. So one of the biggest things which I've always found with the ASC is the iterative process of ABCD or DCBA. And only after years of, uh, of really being involved in it did I finally get the clue that, and especially with many discussions with you, that no, that's, it's not just going from DCBA, it's starting off with B and then filling in 
with the C&D where you could not do it, and then actually looking at critical path and deciding where the A goes. So really, it also took me a little while, even though I was entrenched in the industry, to, to remove myself from that iterative process of escalation or, or de-escalation in terms of quality level, and, and really start to focus on trying to do everything B and then filling it in. So yeah, especially so, with the conversation with you, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that was a, an interesting um, development. W when we started the concept, it was, let's use all the geophysical tools that, that seem to have promise in a particular uh, situation and try to find utilities in spite of not having records or in spite of obstacles that were out there. And when we couldn't achieve a geophysical resolution, we would have to uh, uh, default to a secondary resolution or a tertiary resolution, which would be if there were visible features that we could exactly position uh, through accurate survey, uh, we could call that uh, quality level C. And if there were no physical features or an insufficient number, uh, we could call that quality level D. However, when we were putting the standard together, the Federal Highway Administration was very cognizant of the fact that state DOTs, and that was their market, state DOTs, um, they were cognizant of the fact that state DOTs already had, for the most part, a process that would get them to the point just before geophysics. In other words, in the planning stage, they would uh, typically contact utility owners and say, give us your records. And somebody would try to put that record information on the plan set. And then they would get a topo surveyor to go out and, and survey all of the, the, the topo features out there and put together the topo plan set. And then somebody might try to rectify the the records to that topo and that looked an awful lot like quality level c or d uh, but it wasn't quite exactly the same so as we were developing the standard what we thought was well this could really serve a dual purpose we can get the buy-in of the state DOTs by not altering very much their existing process and introduce this as just another step in their existing process. And that was probably, um, you know, not necessarily a mistake, but something we didn't understand the effects that that would create for some number of years. Uh, because what happened was nobody ever wanted to go to the quality level B stage, which was where we wanted to start. They all said, well, let's just do D and C. That's good enough. Um, and that complies with this standard. And while on the face of it, it did comply with the standard, it left a lot of room for the potential benefits of the process uh, to be left off the table. So, so no, that, that, yeah. that was an issue. And, uh, you know, when we, 
when we came up with the language in 3802 that said in order to achieve quality level B, you must do quality level C and D, that was also um, not understood the way the way we thought it would be understood. And, and what we meant by that was if you're going to do quality level B, then you have to do a visible site survey in that area and you've got to do a records research also and look and synthesize those three sources of information together before you could call it quality level B. It didn't mean that you had to do quality level D first and then C and then B. It meant that those three sources of information needed to be synthesized into the final product. And it took a long time for us to realize how it was being interpreted and how to get around that. And I think uh, uh, the, the latest edition of ASE 3822 uh, is much more clear in those regards. Now, one thing I'm really, really, uh really not surprised at, but just uh, in, in awe and wonder, just how far technology has come over the years. And my best example is when, you know, when I started working in, in the field, when I started working in this field, you know, I, I came from a military background and I was going, okay, where's my GPS unit? And back then there was no GPS. Uh, you know, it was not a, it was not in the civilian field. You know, back then you were still doing traditional terrestrial survey with uh, total station and just the evolution of how all the different pieces of technology have come into play did the as the original ac account for the technological revolution or the digitization or did we have any foresight into that i i think we did i think we uh we were quite good at um anticipating because we had seen the change just in the short period of time that that we were in existence at so deep you know when we started we had plane tables for survey uh when we started uh we only had several different types of geophysics when we started we didn't have cad uh we were hand drawing sets of plans um and so we saw that that very quick evolution of technology and remember, we were, in fact, integrating geophysics, survey, and engineering all at the same time. So we, we actually, I think, got a chance to see the wave of technology well in advance of many uh, others by seeing how all three of those professions were, in fact, advancing and integrating into, into the whole. And you know, I look back on uh, some of the early uh, research projects with the National Academy of, of Science and the National Science Foundation in automated construction and, and working with uh, uh, Caterpillar and John Deere and Red Whitaker at, at uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And I, I remember seeing my first GPS unit on his tractor in his field saying, look at this. I don't even have to drive this thing. It goes where I tell it. And, and that was and that was 1991. And, and this was, wow, this is really interesting stuff. So I think we 
anticipated leaving the standard generic enough that we could uh, integrate new technologies into that without any kind of uh, a conflict with the existing language. And that is one of the reasons why the standard didn't get up, uh, upgraded or uh, uh, re redone for such a long period of time. Most standards get re revisited every five years because of advances in technology causing conflicts with the existing language or calculations within those standards. Yeah, one in thing I did see, yeah. sorry, one thing I did see from uh, from the ASC 38, it also spun off a whole bunch of other sites, like the, the Sharps, the ASC, ACRP Synthesis 34 for the, for the FAA and airports and all these different uh, research projects which actually came out of it. Was that intentional or was that uh, a byproduct of a, a good standard or a good uh, a, a good best practice? Well, it, it, it wasn't intentional. It, it had no bearing on developing ASC 38 in the first place. But after it was developed and in practice, Paul Scott and I recognized that there was a lot of research money out there for things like construction and automated construction and uh, new survey tools, but there was very little focus specifically on utilities. Most of those were, were the manufacturers themselves, but there was nothing for the process of how we dealt for utilities. And, and, and Paul took that uh, information uh, to heart and and really behind the scenes advocated uh, along with myself and, and Nick Zambellis within the federal government, uh, whether it was with uh, legislators or uh, administration officials or, or the various uh, uh, science organizations, that it was time to spend a little bit of money in utility research. And as the Strategic Highway Research Program was being spun up and funded, uh, he was able to uh, convince uh, the, the powers that be that, that this was in fact uh, a good place to put some research money. And we got quite a bit of money for utilities, probably for the first time ever. Now. A lot of that came out of the Department of Energy, who was the one agency putting a lot of money into utility research. And it was mostly for finding uh, not so much utilities, but buried drums and tanks and, and the utilities in between those on Department of Energy sites. And how do you deal with that remotely because of the hazardous uh, nature of that. So they were putting a lot of research money in and failing quite a bit at their at their attempts. So I think that that they uh, had a big say and, and there were some key individuals within the Department of Energy there that 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 helped uh, push the federal government towards and the Department of, of Transportation into putting some of this research money into utilities in general to take some of the burden away from the Department of Energy. Now, throughout the years, of, from what I've seen over the years of my uh, involvement in the industry, 
I think from 2007 to around 2013, 2014 was that, that Haiti FC where it was really getting great traction. Uh, I can say that across Canada, it was getting great traction. It was being added into procurement documents and it really started uh, on an upward slope. And then all of a sudden I started seeing a lot of uh, watering down of the, uh, I'll call watering down of the actual deliverables and saying, wait a minute, uh, you know, maybe this does not need to be an engineer. Maybe this is okay. Just the few technicians going out and actually calling it quality level B and so on and so forth. What do you think brought about uh, the, 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 the watering down of the actual standard to what it was intended to be versus what it, what was actually being produced? Well, there, there were a couple factors. I think one factor was there was a market and it needed to be filled. And the existing subsurface utility engineering companies that were doing a high-end product couldn't necessarily fill all of that market. Uh, so there was that. I think there was also a... Uh, realization by the survey industry that things were changing. All of a sudden, there was no longer the, uh, although there was a need, there was this new technology that enabled survey accuracies and precisions to be achieved by the common ordinary person. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, the, the survey world was in this transition phase of, gee, you know, does anybody really need our services anymore other than for deed research uh, and meets and bounds? And how do we get our topo survey back, uh, so to speak? And so I believe there was this uh, uh, increasing push uh, for the survey uh, uh, industry to figure out how they were going to evolve in this new market with new technology. And they looked at this concept of, oh, utilities. Well, we used to just disclaim those and only, only indicate what we could see. Why don't we team up with somebody who will allow us with this new concept of a quality level to put this information on our plans and say, yeah, well, we can give it to you, but we can't give you any kind of accuracy. Uh, whereas before they shied away from that for liability reasons, now there was a mechanism for them to uh, somehow mitigate their liability by putting a quality level on it. So all of a sudden we brought the, the survey industry in, and I think just about the same time, the GIS industry uh, kind of split off from the survey industry and they were looking for uh, something more exciting and, and, and rigorous for them to do. And so all of a sudden it became, well, no, how about a GIS professional also doing this work? But gee, we, we don't have any stamp anywhere in the country, so let's make it a non-stamped industry and and that's how the subsurface utility mapping or some industry kind of sprang up about that time frame uh saying well we can do everything you can do we just don't stamp it therefore we can do it cheaper uh and nobody seems to care uh 
uh, everybody's looking, you know, not everybody needs a Cadillac, right? Uh, sometimes a Chevy is good enough. And, and that was uh, uh, how clients were looking at this. That's really interesting. Is that also one of the common aspects of why UESI was formed to, uh, to help advocate for the professional uh, professional side? Because UESI is the newest institute within the ASC, within the ASC. So really interesting how yeah. these all come together. Well, in in I actually have an email going back to 1996 with uh, Dr. Tom Isley and myself talking about. Uh, hey, we need a new institute called the Utility Institute within ASCE. And ASCE was just starting to develop its institutes in the 1990s. And we recognized back then that uh, utilities are a big enough segment of civil engineering that perhaps its own institute would, would be an advantage. Uh, however, we didn't have enough traction back then to really make that happen, and so it took uh, it took quite a long time uh, for us to get traction within ASCE and for ASCE to evolve and and put together new committees like the Committee for Technical Advancement, which looked at taking uh, uh, aspects of civil engineering that were either very unique, like aerospace engineering or uh, uh, mathematical modeling and those parts of civil engineering that spread out over all the institutes like pipelines or survey and geomatics and figure out how can we uh, how can we make ASCE more efficient and and rearrange uh, the organization of ASCE to be better for the industry. And, and that's really, I think, in, in 2010, 11, 12, uh, under the uh, uh, direction of Jim Rosberg at that time and, and others, Tom Smith, that we were able to, to get the impetus together through the Committee for Technical uh, Advancement to put the idea of a utility engineering and surveying institute together. And I believe the first publication came out with was actually uh, the UESI or the Sioux for Municipalities, I believe. Was that the first one that they actually published? Yeah. That, you know, that's probably um, could be construed as, a, as, a, as an accurate statement. Although, because we incorporated the pipeline division and we had an annual pipeline conference and the proceedings of that pipeline conference uh, were published every year, I would say that that probably our first publication was truly the proceedings of the pipeline conference in 2015 or 16. But the first standalone document that was conceived outside of the existing pipeline uh, uh, division was that sue for municipalities and what brought that about was that uh, to give more uh, to give some clarity like i know that we, you were telling me that uh, in our many discussions about the apwa and all these different organizations which were trying to get clarification of how to use the sue process within uh, within procurement and you know, what uh, what really brought that about for you and uh, and all the other people who initiated that uh, that guide 
Yeah. So er, as I mentioned, when we started out, one of the early endorsers of the concept of subsurface utility engineering was the American Public Works Association. And, and we had uh, uh, several uh, <clears throat> documents or events that that took place. One of them was a uh, Kansas City um, uh public broadcasting system uh, series of events where where there were four of us uh, uh, on the local TV station that was then uh, uh, offered to the rest of uh, the PBS world about utilities. And, and that's where it was introduced. And from that, in 1994, APWA uh, put together a uh, sue for municipalities booklet. This was before there was the concept of ASC 38. So it, it was, you know, early days for that. And back in 2010 or so, uh, maybe it was even earlier than that, 2008, I, I don't remember exactly, but Bill Kiger from uh, Pennsylvania One Call, Pennsylvania 811, who was on the uh, the UPROW committee for APWA, which is the Utility and Public Right-of-Way Committee, uh, asked Paul Scott and I if we could update that publication. And, and of course, we said, sure, we'd love to update that. And we started looking at that and, and, and looking at taking the existing document and, and, and tweaking it to include all that had happened since 1994. And after about four years of trying to do that, we gave up. And quite frankly, we just threw the whole thing away, except for some of the examples of municipal projects that had used the early concepts of, of let's use some geophysics and exposure uh, uh, to mitigate uh, municipal engineering projects. and. We really came up with a document that in no way looked like the original. Um, and we talked to the UPRO committee, and they agreed that uh, perhaps UESI or ASCE and APWA could figure out a way to publish this jointly uh, as, a, as a joint publication. And we put those two publication departments together and you know, nothing ever came of it. Uh, there was just uh, silence on both sides of that. And we decided to go ahead as a UESI document with an uproar endorsement for that document. And uh, so we put that together, uh, trying to take into account, what are we trying to do with this document? We're trying to uh, uh, incorporate the concept of ASC 38 and common practice and, and educate municipalities about this engineering process that would be beneficial on their, on their projects. But one of the things that had always been lacking in our industry was what are the pre-qualifications of providers and what is a scope of work that is compatible with ASC 38? What does that look like? And so we wanted to make a, a guide that would have some, either an appendix or a chapter, and we ended up with chapters, 
uh, for it that would spell out that if you're going to be using ASC 38, here, in fact, are things you should look at from a pre-qualification standpoint, and here are things that you should look at uh, from a scope of work side of things that would be uh, integrated into ASC 38 concepts. And so that's really how that uh, document came about. So our idea was at the end of this publication, we would have, and, and remember we were simultaneously updating ASE 38 and creating a new utility as constructed standard uh, or as standard, uh, now ASE 75. So we wanted that triumvirate of documents, uh, two standards, one on existing utilities, one on new utilities, and then an idea of how to integrate them into a scope of work and make sure you got a consultant who knew how to use those into these three uh, documents that could be uh, purchased and, and used by a public agency, not just a municipality, but a public agency uh, to improve their overall uh, utility program. 